Hello, I'm Barbara Bander, and this is The Model Black, a podcast about equity at work. This podcast series aims to create a space where we can have open and positive conversations around race and difference in the world of work. My ultimate goal is to create more inclusive and equitable workplaces. Recognising, as we do, that achieving equity at work is very much a journey and not a destination. During this podcast series, we're going to have conversations with experts from across the globe, exploring what we can all do to make our workplaces more equitable. My guest today is Tony Burnett. Tony is currently Chief Executive of Kick It Out, an organisation that tackles all forms of discrimination in football. Tony has held senior positions across a range of organisations, from West Midlands Police to Ford Motor Company to Lloyds Banking Group to Diageo. Tony has also got many years of experience as a diversity and inclusion consultant supporting public and private sector organisations across the UK, Ireland and in African countries. So a very warm welcome to you today, Tony. Hi, Barbara. Thanks very much for having me on. No, it's great to have you here. And Tony, as I've mentioned, you've worked with a whole host of companies, and I'm really intrigued to hear about some of the changes that you've brought about in those organisations. But just ahead of that, Tony, I want to hear more about you. So, you're a mixed-race lad from Bolton. How did you make it here? What's your story? I could take the whole podcast, actually, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I grew up in Bolton, uh, quite a challenging uh, childhood with dad from Barbados, mum, white British. They actually met because my my grandma was, was as, as a lot of African-Caribbean people that came from the Caribbean at the time, she was an auxiliary in hospital. And my mum was a nurse there. And my dad used to pick my grandma up from uh, from work and uh, she gave me a, he gave a lift to my mum one day actually so she was friends with my grandma before which is an interesting way of, of doing things before she met my dad and the rest as, as we say is kind of history but uh, yeah so uh, grew up in Bolton the only only black or mixed heritage family in in the area and quite a tough upbringing two up two down terraced house in a, in a really working class environment but lots of positive things as well you know we grew up in a really close knit environment, as the as the four, the four of us, which became five when my younger sister was born in our family, but very early on we understood that we were different and the the need to kind of protect ourselves in that environment and some of the challenges that we we're going to face. I mean, my first first memory of realizing that was was four years old in school. Been an interesting background. Yeah, tell us a bit more about that, Tony. You said you were four years old. That was a very young age to to really start to realize that that you're different. What happened? I came home from nursery. I remember the bizarrely, you know, you, you have strange memories. I, I was wearing a, a teddy bear t-shirt bizarrely. I remember the t-shirt because it was one of my favourites at the time. I was in in nursery school, junior school, and somebody called me. Um, I'm assuming I can use quite uh, specific terms. Whatever so, they called you, what do they so, call so, you? Somebody called me a nignog, which and is, is kind of it was a, a common term at the time. But but essentially, I went home, didn't think anything of it. And I was playing with my dad at, at night, and I remember repeating the turn to my dad, who looked horrified. I just remember the look of horror on his face. And he sat me down and kind of talked to me about, you know, race for the first time in, in language that I could understand as a four-year-old and why that wasn't appropriate and why I shouldn't say it and 
why my friend, you know, what reason could he have for saying it? So it was a, I think I remember it because it was the first time that I'd realized that I was different. And actually that wasn't, that wasn't going to be a hugely positive thing in the environment I was growing up in. Right. Yes, I, I see. So, so you grew up in Bolton, and as you said, your dad's from Barbados, and you've got a white British mother, as you've mentioned, and you obviously did well at school, Tony, or, or did you? Perhaps you can tell me a bit more about it, because you've ended up doing really senior roles in industry. So it feels like you made a very big leap from school through to being very senior in organisations. So, tell us a bit about how that developed for you. School was, secondary school in particular, was quite a challenging time. I, I passed my 11 plus, went to grammar school, but in midway through kind of third year, we became a comprehensive. And the grammar school was in the probably toughest and most challenging area of Bolton. So when we became a comprehensive, we almost went from, it felt like, from being educated to survival, literally overnight, as we were joined by lots of other kids from who didn't really have a, a focus on education. And that's not necessarily an excuse, but, you know, so I came out with five GCSEs, not particularly good at all. But I, I look back on that time now as, um, as as a time of, as I say, of survival, really. My two best friends at school became drug addicts. One in particular had a, a 20, 30-year battle with with drug addiction. So it was, a, it was a difficult and challenging time. The thing that I guess saved me from going down a similar path was, was football. I played a lot of football at the time and... I was involved in the, it's not, it's the academy system now, but it was more schoolboy football then with Manchester City and then uh, Uddersfield Town trials and various things. So that, that, that kind of saved me a little bit. You're spending a lot of time playing football. So did you get a bit famous, Tony, or, or did you? Tell us how that progressed. My only claim to fame, Barbara, is that uh, I was a long-term trialist at Huddersfield Town when I was 17. And we played at Anfield. We played uh, Liverpool in the first round of the FA Youth Cup. So we beat them. And my only other very minor claim to fame is that I was a trialist at Bournemouth as well, bizarrely. So I met Harry Redknapp, not that you'd have a clue who I am, as a kid on trial. And yeah, there's the three of us, well, four four players for two places, and he selected two others. So, uh... <laughs> And the rest is history because you became a business leader. Well, the rest is history, yeah, yeah exactly that. But, but you know, the, on the educational front, I realised actually as I started progressing in uh, in business life, the, the lack of education was holding me back, both in terms of my own personal development, but also in terms of the access to opportunities. And so I did uh, I did a distance learning postgrad diploma at Leicester University, degree level, and then I went and did my master's degree at uh, at Liverpool University part time at, at evenings in my mid twenties, and that was really a catalyst for for future future success. I was able to get into organisations like Diageo that, that wouldn't have, have looked at me before that because I hadn't got the educational qualifications and despite the experience. And you've had a truly fascinating career, Tony, because as we've talked about before, your early years were spent very much as a, a leader in business and you didn't actually move into the equity, diversity and inclusion world immediately. You worked in business. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so my early career was commercial, uh, fast-moving consumer goods. Um, with, with in sales uh, initially with Jays, uh, you know Jays, the manufacturer of things like Jays Fluid and Blue Lou, as well as a lot of private label products for for the major supermarket chains. So I, I grew up in that world really as a trained kind of business leader and business negotiator, and ended up at Diageo in exactly that kind of role. Um, quickly kind of progressed actually. I joined Diageo looking after their ASDA business, which was tens of millions at the time and then I ended up running their retail sector business so I had all of the 
their retail accounts and the teams reporting into me. So uh, at 31 years old, I, I kind of I had quite a big job and I was perceived as being high potential talent in Diageo. But I guess when things happen quite quickly, and, and the, I guess the two bits I pick out here, Barbara, the first one is mm. when I reflect on that time, a lot of it was ego-driven because I think one of the things that affects leaders in our space and leaders from our backgrounds is sales was really appealing because it was one of the, the the most objective professions I could have chosen to prove myself. You know, forget the subjectivity, just look at the numbers. And it was really clear to me, and I learned early on in my career that that's, I loved that about sales, actually. You can call me what you want. You can pretend I'm not doing well. Look at the numbers. And I always outperformed and, and outdelivered. I think then in when I kind of reached 30, 31, when I was, was in Diageo, was when I started to question, what's this, what's this for, actually? And who am I trying to prove something to? And that's when I kind of had my introspective phase in my life where I really started looking at what am I doing this for? And, and I have nothing to prove to anyone, actually, uh, other, than, other than me as a human being. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Tony, because one of the things that certainly came up in the research that I did for my book is that when you're Black, you do feel that need to work that bit harder. So was that partly, I, I'm guessing... Was that somewhere deep in your psyche that you were trying to prove something? Tell me about it. Was it about proving that as a black man, you could be as good as everyone else? It, it was, but, you know, I had a, again, by the way, I'll just be honest with you, I had a huge ego when I was young. Right. <laughs> okay. So one of the things that my, my dad kind of instilled in both myself and my sister was was this notion that you, you absolutely got to work harder, but you were better because you are better. I remember one of my early line managers in sales saying to me, the way you succeed in this industry is when everyone else is going home at the end of the evening, you go and do another call, go and sell more. And I took that through my career. I knew whatever profession I was in, and particularly as I think as, as you rise through the ranks, when your competition is probably equally as talented, equally intelligent. The, the one thing I could always guarantee was they'll never work as hard as me, and therefore I'll, I will always deliver more. And in industries, therefore, where the evidence of delivery, such as sales, is, is really clear. It's a black and white piece of paper on a P&L. Um, I did really well quite early, but it was it was literally, you know, my, my whole career has been 14, 15 hour days without a question, whenever it was needed and, and whatever day of the week it was needed. So what I'm hearing is you're highly driven. And that's fantastic that your dad was able to instill that in you from a very, very early age. So Tony, now you're successful in business. You've got this great career in Diageo. And at some stage, you ended up moving into a kind of um, diversity and inclusion role. Again, tell us a bit more about how that shift happened and what motivated you. Part of it was was just the introspective phase that I went through in, in life was because I think you can only live on ego and be driven by ego for so long as a human being. Otherwise, you end up in a really interesting place. So when I started looking at, you know, what's this all about? Who am I? And I started looking internally. I went, I went on a journey. So I really started exploring for the first time the black history of my family. So reading lots of stuff from, from James Baldwin through to CLR James, through, you know, all, all the kind of historical context to understand Booker T. Washington, W.B. Dubois, Maya Angelou. And I started really kind of understanding the, the heritage of, of, you know, the black side of my family, where we came from and the struggles. And then I started putting into context some of the things I probably buried over the years. So, you know, I remember in my first role, my first business role, my nickname was Pat Boone. And I hadn't got a clue why people call me Pat Boone until months into the organization. And, and after that, when people kind of, you know, I, I read the sniggers and understood what it meant. I didn't have the courage as a, someone in my kind of early 20s to challenge them people in power but and and there were all kinds of 
aggressions like that, micro and macroaggressions throughout my career that, that I'd, I'd ignored. And when I started really understanding who I am and, and where I came from, I just, I just kind of decided I'm not going to ignore this stuff anymore, actually. This, this needs tackling. And it felt like that was the direction I needed to go in to pursue, to pursue some of that. And you stayed in industry then. So you decided to pursue, to continue in that kind of direction. And things happen to you at work. And you just kind of get your head down, don't you? You don't think about it. You have all these microaggressions flung at you. And it didn't affect you partly because you didn't know what was going on. But once you knew what was going on, what was the point at which you left? Just give us a sense of of how that worked out for you, Tony. I don't think there was a there was a, a kind of pivotal moment. I think I reached a, a point where, well, especially when I went on the, the kind of self awareness journey and really started to read extensively on on our history and, and some of the kind of the struggles that we've had, and it was a, a growing awareness, a growing awareness, but it was also growing confidence actually because what I took from from all that history is a confidence about who I am not less than because I think one of the, the negative things about being ego-driven and having to prove yourself by working harder and delivering numbers is it comes from quite a negative place, which is I need to prove I'm as good as or I need to prove I'm better than. And when you get to a point actually where you realize I don't need your approval, I am as good as, and I was able to start looking at some of the other things I wanted to break down and and really kind of help others get to a point actually where you don't walk around in an organization with your head down. You're not deferential to the chief exec or whoever, because why would we be? You know, again, one of my earliest memories of my father actually was my father kind of came to Bolton and ended up working as a weaver in a mill. And occasionally we'd go and pick him up or go and meet him from work. And I always remember how deferential he was to supervisors and managers. And, And even then at a really early age, again, kind of eight, nine, I remember just thinking, I'm never going to be calling people Mr in that way, in that kind of doff my cap, really deferential way. And that's not respect to my dad. I've got huge respect for my dad. And I know that the the context and the time was different. But I, I think, again, on reflection, I had to get to a point where I understood myself well enough and I was confident enough in myself as a human being of equal stature to get to that point where I thought, <laughs> and then I didn't, you know, realize what I was doing work-wise I wasn't fulfilled by, you know, it was it was ticking a box from an ego perspective, but it wasn't fulfilling my, my, my spirit or my soul. Yeah, that's, that's quite an interesting process that I'm hearing that you went through. And as you were talking about it, I was kind of reflecting a bit on my own experience because I think mine came a bit later. So I had it much later in my career. So I'm interested that yours came at that stage. So you moved into the equity, diversity and inclusion area, and you started to make a difference. So tell us about what you did, because I know you've had some terrific roles. I know you did some fantastic work at Ford. So tell us about the work that you did in that area. The Ford bit was my first real foray into this space. And um, again, I was given a chance, I guess, by a guy called Surinder Sharma, who's who's still a friend. But Ford had some serious issues going back into into the 90s where Dagenham Truck Plant was overtly racist. There were some horrific challenges going on with the Dagenham Truck Plant, often supported by union collusion, I have to say at the time. There was a case where essentially Ford put out a recruitment advertisement and a Sikh colleague on the advertisement was, was... made to look white in the ad when it was played in the UK. So Ford ended up being investigated by the Commission for Racial Equality. And so they had to do something about about their challenges, which is why they ended up recruiting people like me. And it was, again, interesting in that because it wasn't driven by almost a kind of ethical, this is a good thing to do, so we should get on with it. They had had to drive drive change because the CRE were, were 
threatening legal action if they didn't. And so that gave us a mandate to do some really, really serious stuff, you know, going into each of the, of the cases of discrimination, looking at them on their merits, taking action against the perpetrators, holding unions to account. You know, we, we drove some really kind of significant change, as well as the other stuff that builds the longer term culture, which is around education and, and how do you kind of, you know, change people's mindsets. The first thing we had to do was was find out the extent of the problem and make sure that the people who were perpetrating these challenges were dealt with and exited from the organisation. But my learning curve around the Ford experience was that you have to have a mandate. You have to have a mandate to do this work in a serious way. And our mandate then was, was legally driven. It was driven by the, the threat of legal action that, that the CRE were providing to Ford. So we managed to get some really good, some excellent change delivered as, as part of that process. So you had a legal mandate there. And were you able also to change the culture? What I mean is, were you able to get senior leaders on board to this, kind of committed to this over the long term? Because I think it's great doing what you did, but what about this in the longer term? Well, this was where my business background came in really handily, actually, because I went in as a, obviously an EDI lead, but but uh, I got a sales and marketing background as a commercial guy. So I started digging into some of the commercial information, and I looked into um, one particular segment, which I don't know what they call it now, but it used to be called the B car segment. And if for people who are as old as me, uh, cars that vehicles that fell into that segment were Ford Fiesta, the old Renault Clio, I think Renault Five, and just moving towards Clio at that time. And that was that was predominantly a sector that was dominated by female drivers, essentially. So I looked at that and I saw that we've been losing market share at Ford and over Fist for many, many years. And I thought this is, as again, as a commercial guy, I thought the first thing you do is interrogate what, why that is. So a couple of things we did. First one, we, we sent some, some female colleagues into our dealership network with money to spend on cars because I wanted to understand what was happening at the point of purchase. What happens when you go in to buy a vehicle? And what came back was horrific. Our only female senior engineer at the time went into one of our dealership networks and said, I've got £15,000 to spend. I want this kind of spec. The salesperson, I remember very clearly, said to her, would you like to come back at weekend when your husband's with you, love? Um, and this is a woman who designed vehicles, probably knew more than anybody in that dealership about the spec of cars. And there were similar stories like that across across the, the dealership network. So I knew we, we had a problem. And then I put a value to the lost sales so the, the market share that we'd lost, and it was tens of millions in profit, not just sales. And so I, I pulled together what then was a kind of our, our early business case. The other thing I kind of linked was up until the early 2000s, you never saw women featured in, uh, all, despite the fact women influenced so many purchase decisions when it came to vehicles, you never saw women in, in vehicle ads. It was always male drivers, pretending like they're driving rally cars. And, you know, it was very, very macho nonsense. And so I took a whole package to the board that said, this is what we're losing, this is why we're losing it. And if we can regain our market share in these proportions, this is what it will do to your bottom line. And the, the fascinating thing for me was we got the leadership buy-in like that. We got money to spend instantly and we got leadership commitment. And we got leadership commitment because they could see the value, the bottom line value in getting better when it comes to inclusion. And so we we were able to drive change from that perspective really quickly as well. Right. So you've got this... You've got a partly legal mandate and you've got the business case. And over what kind of period of time, how long did it take you to make something like this happen? Because there'll be people, there'll be people listening to this podcast thinking, my organization has got a long way to go. Was this weeks? Was this months? Give us a sense of, of timing. 
and give us also a sense of what it is that actually helps to speed something like this up? I think it depends on the driver. The first driver was the legal driver, which was they, they had a really about a business case for change, which was was the legal case, which was the threat from the CRE. That was the initial. And the, but the secondary aspect was that that only take and like in any any walk of life in any any context, fear only gets you so far. And I'm I'm always conscious of that. It was something my dad always always again drilled into me. So so we had to find another lever. It had to for this to be a, a long term project and and part of the business DNA. We had to find the core, and the core was how do we sell more vehicles through EDNI. And then the women's project led to other projects, like for example, we looked at vehicle ownership amongst the Asian community around the M25. Far more likely to have two vehicles, and at the time, because they were far more likely to to own retail outlets, the second vehicle was was usually a van. But when again, when you looked at the market share. The market share dropped off massively because of the uh, recruitment advertisement I'd mentioned, which was the seat guy that, that the community knew had been airbrushed out of an ad, and also a case that, that Ford had lost against a, a, a chap called Mr. Palmer for race discrimination. And again, when, you, when you're really clear about the stats and we put those in front of the board to say, what's going on in this organization is having an impact on the number of vehicles you sell to female consumers, but also to the Asian community. That's why you've got to get better. That is the stuff that really drives change because they can see the bottom line. I'm not saying that's right, by the way, because there should always be the people want to do the right thing for the right reasons. But it's unbelievable. I never lost that kind of um, uh, that awareness of the way to drive real awareness amongst and commitment amongst leadership is showing the bottom line and demonstrate how they can get there. Yeah. And I think... This is absolutely fascinating because because we talk about this, don't we? We talk about this idea that there's a moral case and there's a business case. And, you know, clearly, often in that case, the business case is the one that wins. The business case tends to always win. And, you know, we really need to be very much aware of the moral case as well. And it's, it's interesting you said that because... When you were at Ford, there was clearly some kind of some kind of financial case, but you also you did some work with the police, didn't you? There you must have had to build a different kind of case. Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting. Actually, it depends what you call a business case. So, in, in a uh, essentially in a private sector setting, the business case is about P and L, and it's mm-hmm. about how you sell more more product. I think in a case like the police, it's, uh, the business case is even more critical because for me, the, the business case is about if you think of the way that the UK policing is set up, it relies on the legitimacy of the community. Legitimacy is built on trust. So if you haven't got trust as a police organization, you haven't got legitimacy. And then that light relies on various aspects of, of a model that you can that we can talk about, which is called procedural justice. So that the way the police conduct their duties in dealing with the public, whether that's stop and search, use of force, or whatever, has a direct impact on levels of trust within the communities. It's really logical, isn't it? And then that level of trust has a direct impact on whether the, the community thinks the police have legitimacy. Now, the key challenge for policing is if legitimacy breaks down and communities don't think the police have legitimacy, we've not got a leg to stand on. The police has not got a leg to stand on because law and order breaks down. It's not an American model. Our police officers, quite rightly, don't carry guns. The whole ethos of the police in this country is is the legitimacy, which is granted by the public and so the need to build trust, and when I see what's going on in, in the Met just now, obviously, and it's not just the Met, there's lots of other forces, the risk is huge. The business case is, is massive. It's beyond anything I've ever, I've ever come across before because they've lost the trust and legitimacy with a huge part of the community, and that is massively dangerous to maintaining law and order. Yes, so I guess in the long run, 
you're right, there is a business case, whatever the organisation. So if we look at the police now, there clearly are still challenges. What were you able to shift? Where where were you able to, to see the changes? Tell us a bit more about what you were able to influence, Tony, the changes that you were able to bring about in your time. Some of this was about discovery, but some of it was about doing things. And there are some simple things, I think, that people often overlook. So there's some process stuff, which is really simple. We, we, we did some stuff around, if you look at promotion processes, for example, in West Mids, we hadn't had people from Black or Asian backgrounds promoted from inspector to chief inspector rank for a long period of time. And we looked at what the process that, that people were going through. And the key trigger was line manager sign-off. So you're in an organization where people join, typically stay for 30 years, they build up an impression of someone's performance, which isn't always evidence-based. It might be based on something they saw 10 years ago from an individual, or it might be based on a personal bias. So the line manager sign-off aspect on whether somebody can apply for the promotion process or not was key. We took that out. We implemented an assessment center process where uh, officers had to go through an assessment center, which assessment center with a diverse range of assessors assessing against a criteria, an evidence-based criteria, promotions from Black and Asian people going from inspector to chief inspector went up by hundreds of percentage points, and it was merit-based. You just take out the the bias, you take out the opportunity for people to manipulate the system, and it's it's about merit. And this it's one thing I'm pushing now in football. You know, we we talk about, and everyone talks about, the lack of uh, career progression for uh, Black coaches in particular into the management arena. And there's a really simple solution for this for me, which is talent map. Talent map, the, the the candidate pool who want to get into management because at the minute, the tap on the shoulder, such and such a body knows X, Y, or Z is the predominant recruitment model for people moving from coaching into, into management when we've got evidence, we know what, what good management looks like. And if we can produce a, a capability um, framework, then we can assess people against it. And then we know exactly who's the, the most talented people to be getting the jobs. The other thing really, sorry, I'm bouncing about a little in policing was around the way that that colleagues use their powers. And so we're all aware of discrepancy in terms of stop and search rates, use of force rates, et cetera, for people from black communities. And my colleague did a a huge piece of research looking at what are the drivers for that? One-to-one interviews, you know, really detailed interviews with white male colleagues. And the biggest driver for the use of force in particular was fear. Fear the black man. And it's something that I know you've spoken about before and we we often talk about. But to see it on a piece of paper across so many people in black and white was really interesting. And if you look at a force like West Mids, where officers have been deployed in places like Hansworth, where it's a a large black or Asian community, they're often joining from communities like Shrewsbury. They've been to school in middle-class suburbs where they never come into contact with a black person. They're then put in a situation where they're confronted with urban young people you know, with, with a completely different way of life. And their their automatic reaction is protect myself. And how do I do that? I'm, I'm going to use violence. I'm going to use my, what they call legitimate powers. And that issue has just never been tackled. It's just never been tackled. And until it is tackled, it's going to continue. Right. So that's right. You know, there's still quite a big challenge there, isn't there, within the police force. And, you know, we know from the reports that we hear, and particularly the ones we hear about the Met, that those challenges are still out there. So you were able to make some moves. You were able to make some great moves in terms of helping people to get promoted, particularly people from, from different backgrounds. But I'm hearing that there are still some, some deep cultural problems that exist. I think that's what I'm hearing you say. 
So, Tony, we've talked quite a lot about your career. And, you know, I keep using this phrase, how you've tackled things. So whilst I'm using that phrase, let's get into football. So you've tackled all these other problems. And now you've moved from a business perspective, from someone who's had P&L responsibility. So tell us a bit how you've moved into this whole field of field of equity, diversity and inclusion within the football area. Why football? I played football for many years and then uh, I coached football at, at grassroots level for a, a number of years as well, my son and various other teams. So I've always been passionate about football, but I also I was also passionate about football as, as a vehicle for change. You know, one of the things I reflected on through my career playing football was that I'm still friends with a lot of the the, the young men uh, who were young men at, then, at the time, actually not necessarily so young nowadays, over many years. And, and it was just such a leveller. You know, I never once experienced when through grassroots football, any hostility or racism from my teammates in the changing room environment. And I know for a fact, actually, having me in that environment, they will learn huge amounts about about black people and, and about me and about actually inclusion from their perspective and over many years actually I had, I had a, we were playing together we had, a, we had a, a number of instances where I've been experienced racism whether it's from the, the supporters or from opposition players I never once had to do anything my teammates sorted it before it became an issue once it became an issue actually and it was quite a challenge but my teammates were always there on the front foot to kind of protect and so I know that they take that behaviour that's not a one-off those mental models they've built around protecting their friend and making sure that you know they called out as an advocate that stuff is not appropriate I know they took that back into their real world in their own lives and protected and, and, and dealt with other stuff that came up in a similar context so I think football is just such an important vehicle for, for, for getting that message across Right so you experienced it then in other people I mean I guess we might call that allyship to an extent in the kind of world that we work in. So you experience that positive allyship and we know that there are still challenges in football, whether it's in the crowds, whether it's just what you've just talked about with perhaps not having the right number of black coaches that we might imagine we should have. So where's your focus? Tell us a bit more about that. Where are you trying to make a difference? There's three three areas where we're trying to make a difference. Uh, first one is is around advocating for change at, at the the government level. Actually, there's some legislation going through at the minute on the back of uh, the fan led review, and we think we've got an opportunity, a one off opportunity in, in our lifetime, to mandate that football has to do certain things when it comes to equality and diversity and put certain capability frameworks in place. So, so that's a huge opportunity. I mean, education is something that we've we've always been an advocate for and we're really building presence in that space, particularly amongst school kids and trying to use our, our voice for that. And the other one is talent. We talk about fair representation and I'm a huge believer in that. And if I look at the stats across football, we haven't got anything like fair representation. And only two ways of really kind of explaining this for me, either, and I used to have the same conversation in, in policing as well, either you accept that black people are less capable or there is something wrong with the system. And I don't believe, and I've never met anybody actually who will acknowledge that black people are less capable and there's something wrong with the system. And just two really clear examples of that for me in football. Premier League's 30 years old now. In the 30 years of Premier League, there has been one black referee officiating in the Premier League. That was Uriah Rennie, and he retired in 2008. Since then, there's not been a single black referee in the Premier League. In the 150 years now of cup competitions, FA Cup, the you know various iterations of the League Cup, 
there hasn't been a single black official that has refereed in any of those those finals over 150 years. And so no one can convince me that refereeing is a meritocracy in the same way that no one can convince me that 45% of players in the Premier League translating into less than 4% of manager and senior coach appointments is a meritocracy. It's just not. It's not possible. And so talent, I think, is a really fundamental battleground. And that's before I even get get onto any of the other statistics. There, there are many I could quote. But I mean, the other thing I'll just, just quickly mention, because I know you'll cover this in other areas, Barbara, is, you know, football's not unique. You know, football operates in the context of the broader society. And every organisation I've, I've gone into for the last 25 years has had similar statistics. And so this is this is a challenge across the piece. You know, you, as you know, my sister's a, a senior exec in the NHS. The NHS, over 25% Black and Asian managers, less than 12% when it comes to senior leadership. And they've spent millions on this problem over the years. And so it's it's a challenge. But I think we've got to get, that's probably for me, the area that I want to leave the lasting legacy because we have to change the landscape. In football, 45% of players, elite players, the top players, are black, and that translates into fewer than 4% of managers. That, that's just not acceptable. Fewer than 4% of managers. And, you know, you're right, Tony, this isn't just a football issue. This is very much a societal issue. And there's also choices that need to be made. You know, the extent to which you need to make a decision about which area you need to pick the area that you want to focus on. So if you're going to make a shift... How do you start? And Tony, the reason I'm asking you this is because I'm actually quite shocked at the numbers that you've just quoted to me. I'm not a great football watcher, I have to be honest, but I'm also quite surprised by those statistics. I mean, what do you think's the answer? And I'm not asking you here to give me some kind of simplistic response. So where do we start? Where do we, where and how do we kind of get things moving? You know, the answer isn't isn't hugely complicated, to be honest, Barbara. I think the, it's never really about the answer. It's about the will to do the right thing. And the, the reason I say that is because, again, you know, so we know where the players are, for example. It's really easy to understand what percentage of those players would want to be managers because the pathway for player in, player into management is through the coaching badges. You know, you've got to do your qualifications. And so years ago, the allegation was that black players just aren't doing the qualifications. Now, we know for a fact that's not true. We know that black players are doing the qualifications and there are many, many black players that are qualified to move into role quite quickly. So it's not about that. It's about how do you get a fair recruitment process in place so that the right people get access to the opportunities, not just the people who followed the merry-go-round and the friend of a friend and such and such body recommended. And that's what we've got to push for within football. You know, I'm a really big advocate for strong HR process in football, which says, if we know, for example, so the the, the people who, who, who get the top jobs all have this qualification called a pro license. And there are only a few hundred pro license qualified coaches in the country. We could very easily put all those coaches through assessment centres to talent map and say, right, we've got we've got X percentage who are ready now. And of that, there'll probably be, there'll be a percentage clearly of, of, of black coaches that are ready. And that gives us a really clear merit-based approach to identifying and putting people into place as opposed to, he did a great job 20 years ago at X Club and, the, and he worked with Fred. So Fred knows him, so bring him in. So it's not necessarily about, we don't know the answer. It's about having the will and the desire to do the right thing. And the only thing, just to quickly say on this, Barbara, is I'm so sick of over many, many years, and I don't want to be negative on this, but in the NHS, I remember working on a program years ago called Realising Potential, where 
the NHS through millions, I know my sister went through this as well, millions are trying to train and educate black and Asian leaders. And that always starts from the assumption that the problem is with the people who aren't getting promoted because they're clearly not capable. And that's utter rubbish. And I'm sick of having to refute that in organisations. The problem is very rarely with the people in the organisation. 99 times out of 100, the problem is that the system is not meritocratic. And I know meritocracy is a utopian kind of vision that we're never going to get to, but we can certainly get a lot closer to it than we are in, in football. Yes, and I can't agree with you more on that. And it's not about fixing black people. We often say that it's really very much about changing the system, making it fairer for everyone to use. You know, it, it, that word fairer, it's, it's a word that we've all been brought up with. And I guess that's what you're trying to do to a certain extent in football as well. And there's a lot of money in football, Tony, isn't it? So where does the will need to come from? Is it, you know, as we look at it, you know, as I see it from an outsider, surely an organisation as powerful and as rich as football, if they want to change and they really want it to happen, surely it's going to happen. Well, he, herein lies the problem, I think, Barbara, you know, in, in you know the, the earlier story we spoke about in terms of forward. And an organisation that is already incredibly wealthy, that's generating considerable revenue, Showing a business case that, that says you can make more money is not really possible in this space. And so the, the case has to come from, you know, unfortunately, it has to come from, from us, from the players, from the people who've got skin in this game. Because actually, you take away the black player representation, you take away the black supporters, Asian supporters, you know, the people from underrepresented groups, then the Premier League's nowhere near as successful. Now, we don't want to get down to a, a situation where we're threatening football with withdrawing our participation. But, you know, ultimately, they have to recognise that we're as, as valid stakeholders in this process. And if we don't start to see fairness, then our, our agenda might have to move from being supportive to being far more confrontational. But we'd rather be supportive and drive change. But if you force us to be confrontational, then that's exactly what we'll be. So, yes, Tony, so that there's conversations to be had out there. There are some serious conversations to be had then within and across the whole kind of footballing world across the whole footballing field, if I can use that analogy. So, Tony, if I was going to speak to someone today, someone in, in the footballing world, and what I do know is that you've got a platform to do this all the time. So imagine you're having a one-to-one -a -one conversation with them. What are you saying to them about what they can personally do at a kind of individual level? Because, you know, as we know, we can shout about it, but, or, you know, we can talk about it at a much broader level. So what do you think would happen? Or what do you think should happen? What would be your one-to-one -one conversation with someone about how you can really start to get things moving? I think it, dep it depends where, where you're at. I mean, for, for leaders in organisations, I still find it really, really strange. And again, I've seen this everywhere, that, that leaders are appointed without any ability to understand, never mind kind of leverage, capability around inclusion. And some of the leadership examples I see, even people who are recently promoted, I'm just thinking of one person I can't necessarily name. I look at this individual in a very senior position and think, not only do you not understand the smallest uh, iota around the inclusion agenda, how have you got your position? How have you been appointed into that role without any level of consideration in that, that regard? So I think the first thing is actually from a leadership perspective, we need to make sure that people who are getting the, the jobs in leadership positions can evidence knowledge in this space and can understand and, and evidence 
how they've made a difference in organizations. In 2023, leaders shouldn't be appointed unless they can evidence that as a core capability. And the second bit, really, for me is common myth. We're not asking for special favors at all. And, you know, you know as well as I do, Barbara, it's never about special favors. This is just about create a level playing field, give access to opportunity, and Black and Asian people will come through and Black people come through based on merit. It's nothing more complicated than that. So every time, if you're in a position of, of appointing someone and you're doing it on the basis of you know somebody or you've you've met somebody or you've worked with somebody before, you are stopping and blocking an opportunity for somebody from a, an underrepresented group to come through based on merit. So that's the other thing I'd say is just just reflect as an individual and and, and on on how you're doing the things that that will allow the best people to get through on merit. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense because, you know, as you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot is is the importance of kind of changing the conversation that we're having because if you have that one conversation with somebody, they'll talk to somebody else. And if each of them just does one or two things differently, you know, you, you're really starting to create a movement because that's kind of, you know, as I said earlier, what we're really trying to do is, is to change cultures. And that's essentially what you're trying to do in football. You're trying to change the culture of the institution, of the organisation. So, Tony, you've had a lot of experience and you've given me some great ideas. You've shared with our listeners some terrific examples of both the challenges that you've had over the years and many of the successes you've had, many of the things that you've done to make a difference. So if we take a moment now to kind of look forward and thinking about your sense of what's going to shift in the world, not just in football, but in organisations more generally, what do you think needs to happen? Anything over and above what we've already spoken about as we kind of look forwards? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think firstly, I'd just say in football, I probably forgot to mention, you know, there are some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I think I probably, so there's some really good people that, that have been appointed over the last 12 months that I'm, ho- I'm really hoping in our spaces, places like the Premier League and the FA, I'm hoping they get the space and they get the authority to drive the changes because there are some people that know what needs to be done now and the leadership just need to listen to them and get on with what needs to be done. I think that on the bigger picture, Barbara, I'm really worried, I'll be honest with you. I'm worried about the macro political climate you know, certainly over the last and our figures bear this out, actually, in terms of discrimination reports. I'm worried about the binary positions, the polarised conversations, the the, the way that, that all issues of, of race are, are being spoken about, particularly since Brexit and also since since George Floyd. You know, we were obviously integral to the, the whole kind of movement in football around taking the knee. And I must have been asked 200 times about whether we felt taking the knee was was the right gesture. I was never once asked in an interview why players were taking the knee and what, what we felt were the issues that, that had to be addressed for them to not feel the need to take the knee. And that worries me. We've also got governments in, a government in place now that, that is, I think, is using really dangerous rhetoric when it comes to describing people from different backgrounds and cultures, which is only going only to lead to one thing. And I think we're seeing the, the shoots of that now in terms of, in terms of culture wars. And that's dangerous. And we see the effects of that in football. You know, it's okay in the Premier League. We're seeing that on, on social media abuse towards players in the Premier League. But if you're a, a 10 or 11-year-old kid playing football in a park on a Saturday or Sunday morning, 
you haven't got stewards protecting you. You haven't got all the protections. When somebody's using the N-word or is throwing a punch at you, like we see quite frequently because of the colour of your skin or your ethnic background, that is driven by a narrative that comes from an irresponsible government, then I worry about, about what, we, what we can do to drive real change. But I also think on the back of that, it's more important than ever that we that we carry on the fight, actually, because we've got to tackle this irresponsible narrative that's coming from people in, in positions who should know better. So looking ahead, we're working within this, this context then, aren't we, where is, there is this political, whatever we want to call it, this kind of culture wars context. We're working within this, and within this, as you've also said, good people are being appointed. So on one hand, you've got concerns about how things are going to move forward. There is actually some hope. Well, the hope is always there, actually. So the, the hope is we've got some good people. The hope is we, we had our, our Raise Your Game conference a couple of weeks back where we got a lot of talented young people, 300 talented young people from our communities together. And I think I think the, the young generation coming through now, I think one of the things I'm always conscious of is not tainting them with my <laughs> lived experience of doom and gloom because they're, they're, they're not only incredibly talented, a lot of, the, of our younger community coming through, they're quite rightly expectant. They expect to be treated in the right way. They expect to have opportunities based on on merit. And and I think that is that is the future. I, I genuinely do think that we've got a younger generation. I think this is what was fascinating for me through the George Floyd, obviously the awful situation of George Floyd three years ago, was that for the first time, actually, I saw a black youth and, and youth from other communities actually coming, coming forward and kind of saying, this might have been your world, but it's certainly not going to be ours. And I think that's that's why I also think um, you know the, the government have got to be careful because they're, they're trying to appeal now to a demographic which is my age and above, the younger generation coming through and not thinking in that way at all. And, and I'm really hopeful that they're going to sweep this aside and, and see it for what it is, which is nonsense, and move towards a more meritocratic uh, country and, and football will benefit from that. And it's very interesting what you say there, Tony, because on the one hand, as you know, we have a lived experience and we want the next generation to be different. And on the other hand, we want to protect them. So there's often this kind of tension that exists, isn't there, as we kind of look ahead. But it's good to hear that there is actually really some some hope out there. And Tony, given that there is some hope, what is it that you want to leave the world of football or, or the broader world? What would you want your, your legacy to be? You know, when they look back and they say, Tony made a difference here. And, you know, I know you said earlier you were a man of ego, but, you know, let's put you back into that. Let's get you a bit more egotistical talking about yourself. What would you like them to be saying about you, about what you did, what you achieved? I, th I think without um, being overly ambitious, you know, I want to see more meritocratic systems. So my vision ultimately is based on merit. I'd love to see a black manager of England football. I think that's the next step. We're not, we've been nowhere near it, but that for me would would send such a huge message about inclusion, about this country, about what we stand for, and about the fact that black people can succeed on merit. Now we're so far away from that, given the lack of black managers in the in the senior league, that that it's it's a long journey. But that that for me would be a fantastic achievement that would send such a positive message to so many young kids growing up in this country. So that's what you'd want to leave. 
So is, is there anything else, Tony, that you'd want to say to our, our listeners, you know, as, as they're really trying to think about how to have more positive conversations around race and around difference more generally in their workplaces as they themselves are trying to shift cultures? Is there anything else that you'd want to share with them at this point? I think one of the things that comes comes out in your, in your book, actually, Barbara, which I had a really good read of last week, and thank you for that, it was brilliant, is the really importance of, in, in a world that is consistently putting negative messages of black people into the, both overtly and covertly, into the ecosystem, finding your, your true centre, the place where you can go to, that you, you know who you are, and you're comfortable in who you are, and those messages don't get through in the same way is a really important. It was, it was hugely important for me. And I know you talk about, and we've spoken about people who've got to that point, and you, you, you kind of, I think that's massive. And so I just say to people, if you've not gone on that journey yet, you're not really in a place where you've, you've looked inside and you're, you're happy with who you are. Then it's really important you do that because that's our only protection against the external is going inside and, and getting to a place where we're comfortable and, and safe and secure in who we are as, as human beings. That's your message then. That, that's great. That's your message for, for Black people, for people of colour. And what message might you leave our non-Black leaders with in terms of moving forward? What might your message be, be for them, Tony? I remember having this conversation just after George Floyd, when, again, it was the first shoots of some of the kind of polarisation of opinion. So the, the, the first thing I'd say is, you're never going to understand the black experience. So please don't even attempt to understand the black experience. You're never going to understand it. And if you can't understand it, then you haven't got the right to dismiss it or challenge it. So just listen to it. Believe your colleagues for, for what they're telling you in, when it comes to their experience and use your leadership power to make the work environment a fairer and more inclusive place for them. It's not your place to tell them that what they've experienced and lived isn't real or it doesn't impact them as much as it's, they, they say it impacts them. It's your job to make sure they can succeed. Fantastic, Tony. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Great appreciative to you for being my guest today. Thank you so much for talking about your work experience. Thanks for talking about your life. And thank you also for this terrific advice that you've offered the people who are listening in. So excellent. Thank you again, Tony. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks for asking. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Model Black. These conversations mean so much to me and they're so important in helping change to happen. If you've enjoyed what you've listened to, please rate, review, follow, subscribe and share. This helps other people find the show and it means you won't miss a thing. If you'd like to find out more information about my book, The Model Black, you can find more information in the podcast description.